Praise the Lord. We're going to have the scripture reading. Uh, we're going to begin with 1 Samuel 13, 8 through 15. Praise the Lord. And he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom should not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel rose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. 1 Samuel 14, 6 and 12 and 13. And Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrisons of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or few. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. And then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer killed them after him. 1 Samuel 15, 17 through 23. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to the destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. And why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took up the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, As the Lord is great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Praise the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you, Henry. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the chance now to come before your word. God, we pray uh, for a humility to receive it from you as what it is, your word. God, may you uh, be at work in our lives to conform us to your word, to shape us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. God, may we um, set your word over our lives 
and submit under it. May you be the Lord who sits on the throne uh, of our lives. You are the Lord who sits on the throne of all eternity, of all the universe. And so, God, we pray for the humility to sit below you as who you truly are, Lord over all things. May you conform us and may you at work, be at work in us and work salvation even among us today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. This morning I want to ask you about your obedience or lack thereof sometimes. What, what motivates you? What, what gives you the, the um, desire, the, the, um, con- what convinces you to be obedient to a certain rule or law, especially when it comes to the Lord? Uh, back in college, uh, I went to Wofford, which is a pretty small campus, but uh, just big enough that if you're running late for class, a bike is helpful. And so I had a bike on campus to help me get in between uh, places. But where I, I had to lock up my bike was, uh, you know, the, where the bike rack was, there was no cover. And so every time it rained, it just got, you know, totally drenched and eventually was going to just deteriorate. So I had a bright idea and I brought my bike into the stairwell uh, of, of our college dorm. And it was out of the way and I thought it was a good place, but I got a note attached to my bike that said, you know, no bikes allowed in the stairwell. I thought that was kind of silly, but you know, I took it outside back where it was supposed to go at least until it was supposed to rain again. And I brought it back into the stairwell and I got another note. This time I think, I don't remember all the details exactly, but somehow they let me know that this was, you know, I couldn't just keep doing this. So I went and figured out what was going on and apparently it broke fire code for this to be, you know, in the stairwell. But, but looking at the way the, the stairwell was, like when you came into the door where the stairs are, there was a hallway this way or, or you go up the stairs this way. There was nothing back there under the stairs. Nothing. It was just a wall. Just like, so I, I wanted to tell them I didn't. I wanted to tell them that really my bike is actually helping people. Because if there's a fire and they're running that way and they trip over my bike, maybe then they'll look up and say, oh, there's just a wall over here and I should just go the other way. Like I thought, yes, there's this rule in place, but my way is better. Like I'm helping people. I'm actually not hurting people. Well, they let me know about the fine that's attached to a repeated offender. And uh, because bikes have to be registered and it's got a sticker on my bike that's attached to my student account, there was really no way of getting around it. So my bike went outside and it just eventually rusted completely through because of the rain. And that's how they convinced me to obey their commands. When it comes to God's word, praise God that his laws are not like the over-the-top uh, fire codes at Wofford College. Uh, his commands are good and beautiful. Psalm 19 uh, describes the law of the Lord as perfect, reviving the soul. Or verse 10, it says, More to be desired are they than gold, sweeter also than honey. So the question is, why don't we obey them? If they are sweet, if they are more desirable than gold, what keeps us from following the Lord in obedience? This fall, we're walking through First and Second Samuel and where we got to last week was where the, the first time that Israel as a nation had a king. They had rejected God as king, and yet God in His grace and mercy asked, or gave them what they asked for. He let them have an earthly king, and so King Saul comes to power and even has a good first day, a good first season. He wins a battle by the Lord's Spirit and gives the credit to the Lord, and it seems to start out pretty well. And so Samuel gives a a, a speech in response to what's what's going on and said, if you keep doing this, things are going to go great. God's going to establish your kingdom. Things will be good for you. Listen to God and things will go well. And the people are like, yeah, of course, that sounds good. Listen to God. Deal. Got it. 
And then we turn the page, like literally just one page, one chapter, and it doesn't go well after that. Saul and the rest of the people refuse now to obey the voice of God. Chapter 13 is where we pick up today. And again, Saul is going into battle with the Philistines. And he's been given some specific instructions by Samuel. Though the battle is, is all being staged, Saul is supposed to wait for the seventh day. And Samuel, being the prophet for the Lord, he speaks for the Lord. So when God speaks through Samuel to Saul, this is God's word. Not just a man's word. This is God's word coming to Saul. And so Saul has the opportunity now to, to do what he was just told to do, which is obey the voice of the Lord. Wait seven days, then Samuel will come. He'll make the sacrifice. He'll give you instructions, and you can go from there. Well, waiting for seven days... While the battle is being staged, apparently was pretty hard. The Philistines started bringing in their troops, and it says they had so many that it looked like the sands of the seashore. The Philistines were just covering the land. And so the Israelites started to get a little bit afraid. It says that they were scattering. They were going and hiding in caves, in tombs, in cisterns. Some were even crossing over the Jordan River, which is like reverse taking the promised land. They're leaving the promised land. They're leaving the country, fleeing the country. That's how afraid they are. And they only have about 600 people left that are the Israelites. And it says even them in chapter 13, verse 7, that they are trembling. They are trembling. So if you're Saul, if you're king, you probably have good reason to start getting a little nervous, right? This doesn't look good when it comes to battle strategy and how you're going to uh, defeat these enemies, these Philistines. So Saul waited, at least kind of waited, until the seventh day. But chapter 13, verse 9 says, Saul said, this is on, on day seven, he says, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. So he went ahead without Samuel. Verse 10 says, as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him, and Samuel said, What have you done? What have you done? Now, this may not seem like a real big deal. Uh, you're like, hey, it's an offering, it's a sacrifice. Can't anybody do that? Or maybe you, you're like, maybe it's a king versus priest thing. Maybe he was just supposed to wait for the priest. But again, what's the big deal? I mean, he's a leader, they're a leader. We're all just here to worship the Lord, right? Well, here's what the big deal was. Saul, uh, Samuel tells Saul, verse 13, what the big deal was. You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which He commanded you. So the most important part here was not the logistics or the sacrifice or the timing. It's that God commanded something and Saul rejected it. This is what God says to do. Saul didn't do it. Saul decided he is king, not the Lord. His word, his rule, his decisions were final and not God's. And when it's laid out clearly like that, we say, of course that was wrong. But when it's our lives, not always as easy, is it? Following what God says is what we're called to do. And Saul illustrates somebody here that instead does what he wants to do. Samuel represented God's, uh, God's voice to Saul. And when the going got tough, when things were hard, Saul decided he didn't want to hear from God he wanted just to do things on his own. Why? Why would he do that? Why would he take matters into his own hand? Well, this isn't the only time that Saul 
does this. Chapter 13 records for us Saul's first blunder. And then two chapters later, we get a very similar mistake. And these two chapters together form kind of the tipping point in Saul's reign as king. And so when you put both of these together, I, I want to show you that really the, the, the two sins of these two chapters are one and the same. Saul's heart is the same in both of these instances. And here is the problem. Saul feared man more than he feared God. Saul feared man more than he feared God. And you know what happens when we fear man? When we fear man, we disobey God. When we fear man, we disobey God. Saul's sin wasn't just a matter of getting kings and priests confused and about, about you know, logistics and details. It was, who is king? Who are you going to listen to? Who's in charge? Who do you revere and respect above all? Is it man or is it God? This sin of fearing man above God, I, I think, is vastly pervasive. This is everywhere. But I, I want to show you, before I talk about us, I want to show you why, why I think this is what is going on in Saul's heart. I, I just know, by the way, that in all this, I'm going to get Saul and Samuel confused here at some point in the way I talk about this. Saul's king, Samuel prophet. So if I say it backwards in a minute, you, you sort through the details for me. Here's, here's what we know. Here's why I think that, that Saul, there we go, Saul uh, feared man. His, this is the excuses that he starts to give to Samuel. This is in chapter 13, verse 11. He says, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and number two, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and number three, that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. So can you, can you hear the, the progression here? I'm losing troops. My military power is, is, is fading. My, my eyes are looking around. I used to have more. Now I don't have very many. That's, that's a good excuse. No, not really. Number two, Samuel, you, pointing fingers at you, Samuel. It's your fault. People are letting me down. The plans are, not, the plans are changing. We had a plan. You're not sticking to it. So military power is going. Plans are changing. And number three, those Philistines sure are big. And there sure is a lot of them. He's got plenty of good reasons why he did what he did. But do you know what he didn't take into account? What's the one thing he forgot? God. He forgot God. And it's easy for us reading through the Bible one page after another. We're like, okay, this is the book about God. I'll, how could you forget about God? But we do this. And here is Saul, and he is completely ignoring God. Since when did God need more troops to win a battle? Like just read all the battles, any battle, pick a battle. The winner is not going to be determined by just who has more people. Since when has God been limited to our plans? Since when do we have to orchestrate things perfectly in order for God to win the battle? And since when has there ever been an any enemy anywhere ever that is too big, too strong, too scary, too numerous for God to win the battle? None of those have ever stopped God before. And yet for Saul that day, that was just too much. And he had to take matters, so he thought, into his own hand. So you see the problem. Saul feared man more than he feared and respected God. Or as one counselor and author named Ed Welch titled a book, When People Are Big and God Is Small. When people are big and God is small. When people are big, we live our life in fear of them. When God is small, 
we disregard Him, ignore Him, ignore His commands. When we fear man, we disobey God. For Saul, the seventh day waiting on the battlefield with his troop problem and his little army problem, his big enemy problem, all that was too much for him, and he disobeyed God. Often, what is right in front of our face looks like it's the biggest thing going on. But usually it's just because we got our face too much in it. If we would just back up a little bit and look up, we remember some perspective. And that just because this thing is in front of my face right now does not mean it's the biggest thing in the universe. It does not mean it's in charge of my life. God is. God is infinite. This thing that's in front of me is not bigger than God. But it seems really big. And when people are big, when we fear people, we disobey God. The New Testament warns against this fear of man over and over. John 12, 42, 43, even when the authorities believed in Him, that is Jesus, oh, sorry, but many of the authorities believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. When following Jesus was going to cost them something, temporal, earthly, they just couldn't go to the synagogue. They wanted to be with people more than they wanted to be on the right side with God. Or again, Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul. I wonder if you can see this temptation in your heart. When it's Saul, when it's on the page of the Bible, and you think, that guy, just, he just never has it together. It's easier for us to point fingers, but I wonder if you can see this temptation in you. Whose approval matters most in your life? Who, who is it that you're saying, at the end of the day, I want this person to be happy with me? Is it primarily about hearing a person, a boss, uh, uh, some kind of success measurement of this world saying, well done? Or would you rather get to the end of the day and the Lord your God? say, well done. At the end of our life, who do you want to say, well done, good and faithful servant? Is it us? Is it somebody in this world? Or is it God? I want to show you this sin one more time in Saul's life before I go deeper in your life, hopefully. But I want you to see in chapter 15 that the, 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 the details are different, but the heart condition is the same. This is, this is Saul's heart problem. He fears the Lord. So if you flip over to chapter 15... We'll see this happen again. Now this, again, I can't touch everything in these chapters. This is not a sermon on God's holiness and justice. And so this chapter may throw you for a little bit of a loop because God calls Saul to completely wipe out the Amalekites. And this group of people were evil. They had been torturing God's people for a long time. And so you may get hung up on this, but God is perfectly holy and just and righteous. And he has the authority over all things. So that is a big part of that. But what's, why, one of the reasons it's here in this passage is that God is once again giving Saul the opportunity. Here's the command from God. The question is, obey or disobey? Whatever the details may be, whatever the command may be, that's the, that's the issue on the table. God commands you to do something, Saul. Is it yes or no? Will I obey him or will I do things my own way? I'll give you a hint. It's not going to go very well. After church, chapter 13, we might, we, might be able to, and we might be able to anticipate that. So here's the heart level. He's going to fear man instead of fearing God. Chapter 15, verse 1, Samuel said to Saul. So again, this is God's word coming through Samuel to Saul. The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. 
Now, therefore, listen to the word of God. So Saul, he's called to defeat, completely wipe out the Amalekites. But then we read in verse 9, he did that mostly, but he spared king, the, the king of the Amalekites, Agag, and he spared the best of the sheep and the calves and the lambs and all that was good. This is in direct disobedience to exactly what God had called him to do. He called him to kill even the livestock, even the king, and yet he kept them for himself. And then Saul has the audacity to come out to Samuel when Samuel comes out to the battlefield. Verse 13, he says, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I, this time I got it right, Samuel. I did, I did what I was supposed to do. I obeyed the voice of the Lord. Sort of. He did a lot of things he was supposed to do, but not completely. When you read through this chapter, I encourage you to take some time, circle every time you hear the word hear or listen or voice. It's over and over again. The question is, are you going to listen to the, to the voice of the Lord? That's chapter 15, verse 1. And when Samuel gets out there, you know what he can hear? He can hear the animals. He can hear the sheep. He can hear the oxen. oxen. Verse 14, and Samuel said, What is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? This repeated word, it's, it's, it's like in your face. Saul is not listening to God's word, and anyone around can listen. They can hear the sound of the animals, that they are the evidence. The sheep are proclaiming, Saul messed up. Saul's not listening to God. I'm evidence right here. They're the ones proclaiming. And you can hear, you can audibly hear his disobedience to the Lord's command. So here's one of the keys in understanding whether or not we fear God or we fear man. Whose voice are you listening to? Whose voice are you listening to? Is it God's word or man's word? That, that could be that there are people that are trying to directly lead you against God's word or just who are you depending on? Where is your confidence? Where do you trust in? Or are you letting your word, your own opinions, your own ideas be the thing that you are listening to? Whose voice carries the most influence in your life? There, there are probably some people in your life, and this can be a very good thing. It should be, hopefully. Hopefully everybody's got these people that when they speak, you listen. I hope my kids will one day think that about me. <laughs> that when I speak, they'll one day they'll listen, right? We, we want, this, this can be a very good thing. But ultimately, who's in charge? Whose word has the last word at the end of the day? Do we take people's word and measure it up against Scripture and let Scripture be the determining factor? Are we good Bereans? We go back and search the Scriptures and say, is this true? Is this true? Maybe you've got parents or a spouse or kids or your boss or your employees, and when they speak, their opinions, their thoughts, that's what moves the needle of your heart. That's what shapes your thoughts and opinions. Maybe it's a certain political analyst or podcaster or preacher, somebody you listen to and say, this, this is the voice I, I listen to. Or maybe you, you, you can't point to any individual, just kind of generally going with the flow of culture. And you're kind of saying, no, this is, I'm going to go with the flow here. I'm going to go with the tides. Or maybe you say, no, 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 I don't listen to anybody. I stand on my own two feet. Well, great. Then you just made your voice the, the man that you're fearing. Yourself is becoming the person that's most important in your life. Whose voice carries the, the, the most weight, the most significance? We are called to be people who listen to one voice above all others. It's the voice of God. He's the one that has called us to Himself. He is the one that has commanded us to obedience. He is the one that preaches good news 
that we should listen to above all else. God certainly, frequently uses people to communicate His Word and His message and wisdom and truth. He uses good counselors around us. But again, we measure all those counselors who are fallible against the Word of God, which is infallible. It will not lead us astray. One way we know we are living in the fear of man is when we are disobeying, directly going against the Word of God, whose voice we listen to. This, this evil sin, the fear of man, <coughs> excuse me, I think is a little bit like a multi-headed dragon because this thing just shows up in all kinds of different ways, even here, but beyond this passage, uh, so many other places. But I want to show you a couple more of these evil, evil faces uh, in Saul's life. In verse 17 of chapter 15, we, we read this. This is uh, Samuel calling out Saul, and he says this, Though you are little in your own eyes, you, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? So did you hear that? He says, he doesn't say, how come you aren't, you know, more humble? Here he says, you are little in your eyes when you're supposed to be king. Back in chapter 9, when, when Samuel first found Saul, Saul was like, I, I'm a nobody. Why, why would I be king? Of course, God wouldn't call me to be king. And, and to some degree, he's right. He is right. He is a nobody. We're all nobodies. But one of, the most, one of the most subtle forms of pride and the fear of man is living under a cloud of, of self-pity, of low self-esteem, of inferiority, of feeling inadequate. And what's tricky about this form of, of pride is that in some, to some degree, there, there's a hint of truth to all of that, right? We are sinful. We aren't good enough. There is always somebody out there who's better at the things you're doing. Somebody who's better looking, who's stronger, who's smarter, who's faster. There's always somebody out there who's better to do what you're, what you're trying to do, right? However, God put you in that place. And if God wanted somebody else there, he'd have put somebody else there. If God wanted somebody other than Saul there, and he will just a couple chapters from now, but for right now, God wanted Saul there. He was there. So he should not have had a woe is me mentality. He should have said, God put me here. It must have been for a purpose. If your eyes are always on how great other people are and how hard your role is and how inadequate you are and how, you know, how humble you feel, that, that's, not, that's not humility. It's cowardice. It's cowardice. One writer, Greg Morris, uh, wrote about this, about Saul's fear of man and ours, and he said, Cowardice, pride, self-preoccupation can say, I am puny and others more qualified. I don't want to screw things up for myself or by, or by others by doing this thing. But humility says, I am small, but my God is big. So I will go, I will do, I will speak. We are right to think that we are not great, <laughs> but we are wrong when we forget that God is great. And that He is powerful. And if He has put you in a place, it's for a reason. It's for a job. It's for a mission. And He will accomplish His, his purposes. And it might so be that He intends to use you to do it. So we don't need to be, we don't need to be cowering. We're not prideful. We're not saying, I'm going to do it in my strength. But we're saying, God's put me here. And so I'm going to trust His Spirit to work this way. If He really called you to it, He will equip you for it. He will not call you to something and not equip you to handle it. He will give you the strength for it. If you feel weak and inadequate, perfect. You're right where you should feel. That's when God's power is made perfect 
through our weakness. Saul was little in his own eyes, and he forgot how big God was. There's so many other aspects of this story. I'm just going to give you one more ugly head to this multi-headed dragon of fearing man. And then I want to show you the, the positive example. Because what happens in Saul's life here goes, keeps going down a worse and worse track. He never really repents. You go through it, and he's, he goes through the motions. But if you kind of sit in this, this, this passage for a minute, you can tell his, heart, his heart's not in it. So he technically says the words, I have sinned, I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord. But the reason I don't think that was true repentance, that his heart wasn't right, is that right afterwards, he comes up with a, another plan. It's like he doesn't sit in the repentance. He's not really remorseful. The only reason why he says, my bad, is that he doesn't want the, the, the politics of it to look, to look bad. So verse 30, Saul says, I have sinned, period. Like just that's all he says. And then he can move on to the thing he really wants. He says, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me. He's saying, okay, okay, I messed up, I messed up, I messed up. But, but hurry up and let's make this look good so that all my friends, all these leaders won't think poorly of me. Hurry up, hurry up, let's get back together. Me and you, Samuel, we can be buddies again, right? Let's, let's, we'll, we'll, we'll do a worship service together so that way they can see that we're still on the same team and they'll keep following me. Can you see his heart there? I mean, I'm ad-libbing, but I think that's the, the, his intention. He's living for public relations. He's doing things just to be seen a certain way. And that, too, is the fear of man. What God thinks, that's truth. What people think may or may not match it. Who, who's, who are we trying to, to trick? What, 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 what mask are we trying to put on? What, what public image are we trying to give? There is a danger there because we can fool people, but we can never fool God. Saul just wants to keep the peace when instead he should be humbly repenting before the Lord and let God handle how the kingdom's going to go. Who knows what would have happened if Saul would have just truly and honestly and earnestly repented before the Lord of his sin. But he doesn't. He just wants to make things right so that things can all be pieced back together. Whose approval are you living for? Who are you trying to get attaboys from? One of my primary just concerns with all things social media is that it seems like the very fabric of the way these things are built is that they are built for the thumbs up from other people, right? And that encouragement's a good thing. Pats on the back. Hey, love those pictures of your kids. That can all be good things. But you can just, if we are aware of this temptation in our heart to live for the fear of man, to live for the approval, the appraise, the accolades of other people, then you can see how just the idea of, of putting something out there that other people have a, a really easy opportunity to give, give a thumbs up to, that, that gets to our hearts so quickly, so quickly. And it's measurable when it's online. How long did they watch your video? How many likes or dislikes or whatever? But it's not just online. This is a temptation in all of our conversations, all of our interactions. Are we interacting with people in such a way that we just want them to, look, them to think more highly of us? Are our conversations, our interactions, our relationships really just about people thinking, I'm, I'm good, I'm good, I'm okay, right? Tell me I'm okay. That's what we so often are tempted by. We are, are called not to, to use people to build our own approval, our self-esteem. We're called to love people. We're called to genuinely want to give. It's better to give than to receive. In case somehow you have let yourself off the hook, about the fear of man, I found a pretty comprehensive list from that book uh, by Ed Welch, When People Are Big 
and God are small. God is small. So here's some other examples of the fear of man. And just, just so you don't get mad at me, you know, because I don't want you to disapprove of me. I didn't write this list. So other examples of fearing man, struggling with peer pressure, being overcommitted. You don't want to say no and disappoint anybody. Being needy with other people, maybe a spouse or a friend. There's certainly a place of, of humility and understanding. We all need people, but when we're needy, we're using them. We're not loving them. Low self-esteem. I mentioned that a minute ago. About our our self-image can be so often based on, on how people see us instead of how God sees us. Second-guessing most of the things we say because we fear we've offended people. Being easily embarrassed because our perception of other, of our people's perception matters too much to us. Telling white lies to make ourselves look better. Being jealous of other people, their stuff, their status, their life. Anger and depression could have roots in being overly focused in how we are perceived by other people. Avoiding other people so we don't have to deal with what they think of us. Lots of dieting and fitness that, that many times the root of that can get into just wanting to be praised by other people. Or maybe you think I live completely independent of what other people think and so you're actually just full of pride thinking that your own voice, your own way is better than everyone else's and you just have become the man you fear. Your fear of man is fear of self. How about that for a list? Again, it wasn't my list, so don't be mad at me. <laughs> just kidding. My guess is that we could keep going and most of us could find ways that we put people in the place of God. We fear them. We, we, honor the, we, we, we can honor people, love people, but we, we hold their approval to be higher than that of God. And I tell you that as somebody who lives it. Like even seven years into doing this most Sundays, I find it nearly impossible to stand in front of you for this long and not have a major thing in my mind about how I'm being perceived. I, I pray for self-awareness, but not self-centeredness. I, I want to know how I come across and how I communicate in my best moments so that I know how to love you and shepherd you well for the sake of the glory of God. But many times what's going on in my heart is just, am I okay? You know, just, just wrestling with this low level sense of, not so low sometimes, of like, is this okay? Is this okay? Fear of man is a major temptation for so many of us, if we can see it. And when I beat it, I will tell you about it so you can be proud of me. Is that okay? Just teasing. We've all got to battle this one because the, the consequences for this are severe. Do you hear what happens to Saul's life here? At the root, at the heart of this, is not some small measure of, of whether I've got enough self-esteem or how I handle myself online. Or, you know, this is about our hearts about who is Lord of our life. Putting ourselves or anything else in God's place is idolatry. And if that is at the core of who we are, then we don't know God. And we have not submitted ourselves to Him. And don't, don't mishear me. Salvation comes by faith through grace in Jesus Christ. When we believe in Him, though, we, He becomes Lord. And so if we never submit ourselves to Him, if there's always somebody else in His place in our life, then we don't yet know Him. And Samuel's rebuke of Saul is just that. 1 Samuel 15, 23, For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has rejected you from being king. Saul's fear of man leads to the destruction of his throne. His kingdom will not continue because of his fear of man. Kevin DeYoung, who's a pastor in the Charlotte area, quoted that same list from Ed Welch and uh, the When People Are Big and Got a Small Book. And then he wrote this. He said, at this point, you're thinking, great, thanks, Kevin. 
I was, that was really discouraging. I've always felt bad about myself, but now I feel even worse. I had no idea that so much of my personality and idiosyncrasies were mixed up in this sin. Right? Isn't that how you can feel? He says this, but cheer up. Because if your problem is sin and not just personality, it can be forgiven and God can work to transform you. So much of what our, what's going on at our heart level, if it's a sin, in some ways that's good news. You're not just quirky. It's a sin. You can be forgiven and you can be transformed. So I want to very briefly show you the opposite. In the middle of chapter 13 and chapter 15 is a very long chapter that I'm barely going to touch. But I just want to tell you about this one man in that chapter, and his name is Jonathan. Samuel, on either side of this chapter, is falling into the temptations that come along with fear of man. But there's a man named Jonathan who just so happens to be Saul's son. And he does not fear man. He fears God. And when we fear God, we walk by faith in God. I want you to see this in, in, in chapter 14. In this battle that Saul was afraid of losing, where all the, the uh, Philistines were as numerous as the sand, and Saul was down to only 600 people, right? And even those 600 people, they're trembling. It's actually worse than that. They, they had been driven to such a place that there were no more blacksmiths in Israel. So of the 600 people, there were only two swords. There were only two weapons. They were trying to use farming equipment to sharpen it. They had to go to their enemies, the Philistines, and pay them to sharpen their farming tools so they had something for war. There were 600 people against people as numerous as the, the sands of the, of the seashore, and they're, the 600 people are afraid, and they've got two swords. You know what that is? That's perfect. God has it just like he wants it. <laughs> because when God wins the battle, it's going to be clear who gets the glory. We read in 1 Samuel 14, 6, there is just one person and his buddy, his sidekick, who understands, who can see with eyes of faith that the massive thing in front of me is not the biggest reality of the universe. Yes, there are many more people than there are sand. There is only 600 of us and we've got two swords. This is the big thing in front of me. But you know what Jonathan says? Jonathan said to the young man carrying his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised Philistines. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Isn't that incredible? Jonathan's looking at this. I mean, this, this could not look more lopsided. And yet Jonathan says, nothing stops God when he wants to win. Nothing stops God. Maybe he may be that he will work for us. So Jonathan climbs down a valley and up another one. And the Philistines and their pride and their arrogance, they invite him over. And Jonathan doesn't have this major routing. He kills 20 people. Out of all those people, he just kills 20. But then God makes a confusion break out. There's another thunderclap. Saul somehow pulls it together, and they start attacking. The, the Israelites come out of their, all their tunnels and caves and all the places they were hiding, and they win the war. They win the battle. And, John, and 1 Samuel 14, 23 says this, So the Lord saved Israel that day. God had them right where they wanted and when somebody was willing to walk by faith, not by fear, they were willing to walk by trust in the Lord, not by fear of man, God won the battle. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The absolute safest place you can be is trusting in the Lord. When we fear God, when we walk by faith in God, 
That's where we're supposed to be. You don't have to be little in your own eyes. You can be humble. You can have courage. You can do the things God calls you to do when you trust in the Lord. And the key to that is fearing man less than you fear God. Fearing God over fearing man. Coming to Him and trusting in Him. Today, as we take the Lord's Supper, and I didn't uh, recruit somebody to go tell the children's workers we're doing this, but, or that, to, to come over. Um, today, as we take the Lord's Supper, here's the connection I want you to see. Because when this, when this all falls apart for King Saul, bad things are supposed to happen, right? If you go back just one other chapter to chapter 12, verse 24 and 25, Samuel had told them, Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart and consider what great things He has done for you. But if you do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. That's what Samuel had promised. If you do good, it'll go good. If you do bad, you're going to be swept away. So you know what should have happened at the end of chapter 15? All the Israelites should be wiped out, and you and I shouldn't know anything about the God of Israel. That's what should have happened. And God does bring judgment. He does bring consequences, but not as much as they deserve. You see, God had made a covenant with His people back with Moses, and He said this, pretty simple. A covenant is, a, is an agreement, a mutual agreement, Two sides, I do my bargain, you're part of your part of the bargain. So God was going to be faithful. If God's people would be faithful, things would go well. But we were never faithful. We deserve to be wiped out. But then God has sent His Son, Jesus. And you know what Jesus did? He kept the other side of the bargain. He kept the other side of the covenant for us. And the prophets prophesied about a day when there would be a new covenant. And no longer would we be judged based on our actions but instead will be judged by the grace of God and by the actions of God Himself. So what we celebrate today in the Lord's Supper is we celebrate the new covenant that we stand before God righteous because of Christ, not because of our works, and that by faith we can be seen as God's children. We receive grace, undeserved kindness, because Jesus upheld our side of the covenant, which is one more reason to fear God, not man. Trust in Him, not in ourselves. So I want to turn now to the Lord's Supper and prepare our hearts and our minds for our observance of the Lord's Supper this way. The Lord's Supper is a remembrance and a proclamation. We remember Christ's sacrifice and we proclaim that His death and resurrection washed away our sins. And so when we celebrate this meal, we are celebrating an act of faith, remembering Him, and thanking Him for what He's done. If you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, then we ask you not to partake of this because we don't want you to do something that, that is not uh, matching what's going on in your heart. You can just let the, the servers pass by and we would love to talk with you about putting your faith in Jesus Christ. As we prepare our hearts for this, I want to read uh, a couple things for us from a few different traditions and they'll be on the screen uh, as we prepare our hearts. Christ has commanded me and all the believers to eat this broken bread and drink this cup in remembrance of Him. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Christ calls the bread His body and the cup His blood, or the new covenant in His blood. He wants to teach us by His supper that as bread and drink sustain us in this temporal life, so His crucified body and shed blood are true food and drink for our souls to eternal life. The Lord's Supper declares to us that all our sins are completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which He Himself accomplished on the cross once for all. Those who should come to the Lord's table are those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned 
and that the remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and the death of Christ, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead to a better life. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven tells us that whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So to help us prepare our hearts, I want to lead us in a prayer of, of corporate, a corporate prayer of repentance and confession. And then I'll invite you as we pass the elements for you to continue to prepare your hearts and continue to confess your sin before the Lord. Let us pray. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors. We have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The, elders and I are going to, the other elders and I are going to come and pass the elements. And so for anybody who is a believer in Jesus Christ and would like to participate today, you can pick up off the tray both a, a cup that has the bread and a cup that has the juice. And if you will, please hold them until everybody has had a chance to, to get them. And then we will take them together. And as you're sitting there holding the bread and the cup, we invite you to remember Christ's sacrifice, to ponder what He's done for us and confess your sins before the Lord. So I invite you now to a moment uh, of reflection as we pass the elements to you. As you've been holding the bread and the cup and confessing your sin before the Lord, I want to now share with you the good news. God showed His love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because of Jesus, you can be forgiven.